Hello, welcome to Stand to Reason. My name is Robbie Lashua, and for this week, I am the host of the show. Uh, Greg is out, but he'll be back next week, so you can check out what he has been up to uh, on next week's episode. Uh, I'm the newest apologist with Stand to Reason, and I'm really excited about getting to host the show this week because I have my good friend, Dr. Titus Kennedy, on. Uh, Titus is a professional field archaeologist and an adjunct professor at Biola University. In addition to that, he is also a research fellow at the Discovery Institute up in Seattle. Uh, he's been a consultant, writer, and guide for history and archaeology documentaries and curricula, and he currently directs archaeological projects in the Bible lands. It means he goes and digs up old stuff and he discovers amazing things. Uh, Titus has a couple of awesome books. The first book he wrote was Unearthing the Bible, 101 Archaeological Discoveries that Bring the Bible to Life. And his newest book is this, Excavating the Evidence of Jesus. Titus, thanks so much for being on the show today. Hey, Robbie. Thanks for having me on. And it's great to see you again. Yeah, it's good seeing you. So Titus and I have hung out a couple of times. We shared a couple of meals together. We had carne asada in Tucson. I think we had Thai food in Phoenix, which a lot of people don't know. Phoenix has okay Thai food. So anyway, well, I'm glad you're. I'm glad to see you again, bro. Hey, uh, before we get into talking about your book, um, could you explain a little bit about the importance of archaeology in confirming the historicity of the Bible, and also explain what archaeology can't do in regards to the Bible? Sure. Archaeology is a very useful tool when it comes to evaluating or demonstrating the historical reliability of the Bible, because we can look at this actual physical evidence, these hard facts, whether it's inscriptions or it's buildings, it's locations, it's artifacts. And through that, we can, not all of the historical narratives, but many of the historical narratives we can show that they connect to history, that they are confirmed by outside sources beyond what the biblical text says. So very helpful in establishing those kinds of things. Now we haven't discovered everything and we will not discover everything. So we're not going to corroborate every single historical narrative word in the Bible. That, you know, that the expectation is totally unrealistic, but we can do many things. And archaeology is a really powerful tool in showing the reliability of the Bible. And actually, it's something that I think is a bit neglected when it comes to apologetics, biblical apologetics. So I hope that more people will start to realize the usefulness of archaeology and look at some of that evidence and, and use it in their study and teaching. But as far as what, what archaeology can't do, so archaeology cannot prove 100% that all these things happened. Whether we're talking about archaeology connected to the Bible or archaeology connected to texts uh, about Julius Caesar or uh, something even from the medieval period, much closer in time to us, we can't 100% prove things historically like that. Uh, we can show the most likely explanation. We can show connection between the text and the archaeology, a corroboration uh, but, you know, then there's other things that we really can't demonstrate at all with archaeology. That's like miracles, the supernatural. Hmm. So if people have that kind of expectation, it's unrealistic. We can't reproduce miracles. We can't show uh, archaeological evidence that a miracle happened 
we can show an inscription from the time or ancient writings where people are saying, yes, we think this happened or yes, we saw this, but there's no kind of artifact where, you know, you can prove a supernatural event. And again, this is the same for the Bible as it is for other historical sources. We just have to keep our expectations in line with a particular field of study. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, sometimes uh, people ask certain disciplines to do too much or more than they can do, but it's so useful in helping us to to see the legitimacy of the biblical records, to see that they were truth telling in their uh, in their geography and in in their culture and in so many different ways. Well, let's get into talking about um, your new book. So, one of my favorite uh, parts of the, of the new book that you talked about is the census of Quirinius. This is a fascinating, uh, fascinating uh, piece of, of, of writing you did, particularly because this has been disputed for a long time that this census didn't take place and Luke just frankly got it wrong. So can you talk to us a little bit about this, uh, this census that we, di- that we read about in Luke chapter 2? This is still one of the most disputed or sometimes most confused parts of the Gospels where many scholars will say, Luke got most things right, but this is something he got wrong. And why do they do that? You know, Do we have just no evidence for it? Do we have contradictory evidence for it? And according to the perception of some scholars, they might answer yes to either one of those or maybe even to both of those questions. So Luke is telling us there was a census of the whole Roman world ordered by Augustus, the first emperor. Now, did something like that happen? Yes, we know it did, because in Augustus's own records, essentially his autobiography, he talks about three censuses of the whole Roman Empire that he ordered. And one of those, he actually issued the order in 8 BC. So that would fit fairly well with the time of the birth of Jesus. Uh, So, then we get into, well, what about in Judea? Or what about in the kingdom of Herod? Would Would that have happened? Was it possible for a client kingdom to have censuses happen? And yes, we know this from other Roman census documents, that there there were client kingdoms that could get included in censuses. Now, was it was this all at the wrong time though? That's another criticism. Because many scholars will look at Josephus and they see Josephus mentions Quirinius and he is in Judea and he's there doing some kind of census. It's, it's really more like a tax registration. But this happens in 6 AD. Okay, This is after Herod has died and then left the kingdom to his three sons and his sister. And then his, one of his sons, Archelaus, was such a terrible ruler that the Romans kicked him out and exiled him to Gaul in 6 AD, and they took over Judea as a Roman province now. So it was no longer going to be a client kingdom that would be ruled by a Roman governor, a prefect in this case. And so Quirinius, who was acting as the governor of Syria at that time, he was sent in to check out all the records and, and the financial situation. So this is a this is a localized thing that happened in Josephus at a different time. This is not the same thing that Luke is talking about, and it's not the same thing that Augustus issued. Now, as far as Quirinius, 
Was he associated with another census? Uh, yeah, we could say he is because we have an inscription called the Lapis Venetus that talks about uh, Quirinius as a legate. So in this case, he's a, a military legate. And he is in charge of this census. And right now there's a census that's going on in Syria province. That's where this officer who's under his command is is talking about, or his, his epitaph is talking about this. And it's it was ordered by Augustus. It's in the time of Emperor Augustus. So there's a lot of things that connect really well. I mean, this is this is earlier on when Quirinius is a military legate, not not the civil governor of Syria. Uh, but that that makes sense because historically the Romans had the army or the military preside over the censuses. It wasn't the civil governor. So Luke's throwing some details in there. They do line up with what we see archaeologically. There's just a bit of a web to untangle and I think some assumptions that are not correct that we need to get rid of and move past. Well, wow, that's fascinating. So why do people still today, like like with, with this evidence, right, with what you've just talked about, why do people today still hold to, well, no, it must have been the thing Josephus is mentioning? What, what are they holding on to? Oh, that's found in most of the books. Uh, if you happen to take a class that addresses this topic, the professor will probably say something along those lines, like, oh, Luke, you know, he got some things right, but he made this mistake with Quirinius because we read in Josephus it happened in a different time period. Okay. And they, they may not be looking at it in detail. They may not know about some of the Roman inscriptions that factor into this and some of the other ancient historical texts that give us a fuller picture of what was going on in, in both of those time periods. Yeah, and that is so interesting. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thankful you've printed this because I've, I've heard you talk about it before, but I'm really thankful that it's in, uh, in your new book. Um, let, let's move on to talking about, um, about the, the region of Jesus' life, the Galilee region. Um, what archaeology, what, what, what discoveries have been made, I mean, even recently, about the places that Jesus uh, frequents in the region of Galilee? Well, most people are familiar with Capernaum, especially if they've ever gone on a tour of the Holy Land. I'm sure they've gone to Capernaum. They've seen the synagogue there, which the main synagogue they're looking at is the 4th and 5th century one. But the the foundation walls of the 1st century synagogue are right under there. You can still see them. They've looked at Peter's house, which is, I think it's a strong case for it being Peter's house. It was a church, became a church probably late first century, and then they start writing Christian graffiti on the walls in the second century. And, and But then we've got other places too, you know, like more recent discoveries. Uh, Magdala, probably quite a few people know about that now, but you know, originally they found a synagogue there, which was an excellent example of a first century Galilean synagogue because it wasn't built over by a later structure. And then, they, you know, they said that they found a second synagogue there recently, uh, we look at places like Beit Saida. So there are a couple of sites that are sort of duking it out for which is the Beit Saida of the Gospels. And I think the, the one that has been more recently excavated called El Araj, which is right on the water, just like Capernaum and Magdala and all these other Galilean fishing villages of the first century are. I think that's the, the right one. In fact, they found a Byzantine church there that they think seals it and basically shows this was the 
the home of Simon and, or, and Andrew, the hometown. You know, they moved to Capernaum later, but that's why the church was built there. Whereas the traditional Beit Saida, if I want to call it that, you know, the other Beit Saida, it has no Byzantine church, anything like that, and it's located way off the lake. So there, you know, there's all sorts of stuff. Chorazine's got some first century remains that were found recently. There's that Jesus boat, as it's sometimes called, that's a great example of a first century fishing boat from the Sea of Galilee that's the same size as Jesus and his disciples would have used. So many, many things, you know, Nazareth, etc. Man, that is fascinating. So the geography of the Gospels, we found it. I mean, it's it's literally there. You can visit these places, not just the big city Jerusalem, but even these tiny fishing villages all along the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, we know where all these things happen. Uh, just about every site has been identified. But but beyond that, even, you know, we see first century remains at these places. And so we know that they are actually in existence at the time of Jesus. But then even specific buildings that are mentioned in the Gospels have been identified, like we saw at Capernaum with the synagogue and the house of Peter. And, you know, we've got evidence in places like Nazareth that the the population were Jews who were observant of the Mosaic law. And so all this, these kind of details are, are fitting with the Gospels very well. It's, it's not a mythological setting whatsoever. That is fascinating. So people could literally go to Peter's house today, which you say is, is most likely the legitimate place where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, right? Right. You can go to these places where Jesus actually performed miracles. I mean, is that, that makes me want to go to Israel really bad right now. <laughs> I know you go a lot, but man, I think that would just be fascinating to go to these places where uh, where the Gospels uh, mention Jesus performing miracles and validating his his Messiahship. That is that is so cool. Well, let, let's move on from that and talk a little bit about Emperor Hadrian and some of the sites associated with Jesus uh, around that. So Emperor Hadrian ruled in the early 2nd century AD, and he was an opponent of Christianity, as most of the emperors were, but he tried some different tactics. And so what he did is really important for us to understand historically, but it ended up being very useful in the preservation of some sites associated with Jesus. So Hadrian had originally, he looked at the past, at these persecutions of Christians in the Roman Empire, and he said, all right, violence is not working. I'm a, he, I'm a Hellenistic philosopher type, so that's what he fancied himself as. So he thought, I'm going to go and I'm going to argue with these bishops, and I'm going to convince them that Christianity is false, and they should be ascribing to polytheism, the Roman or Hellenistic version of it. So he actually had a discussion with a couple of bishops and Christian bishops. We might call them some very early apologists, Christian apologists. And of course, he didn't convince them of this. And so he thought, all right, I'm going to try another tactic. And he decided that he was going to cover over these historical sites associated with Jesus, with important events in Jesus's life, with Roman shrines and temples. In, in an attempt to essentially eliminate the historical memory of Christianity and also syncretize things into Roman religion. So Whoa. he did that at places did that, like... Did that cause problems? Like, did, were people really upset about that, but just with no power to do anything? I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure people were very upset about it. Christians were in those regions, but 
at this time, yeah, they had no recourse whatsoever. Yeah, he's There's the emperor of the world, do. right? Sure. Yeah, and Christianity was not legal at the time. So you you look at places like the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, all right? He built a shrine to Adonis over that. Uh, well, I should say over the cave where Jesus was traditionally born. Uh, in the Pool of Bethesda, he had a temple to the healing god Asclepius built. And then it also seems like at the Pool of Siloam, he had a shrine to the nymphs built. And then over the tomb of Jesus and the presumable crucifixion site, he had a massive double temple to Jupiter and Venus built, similar to the one that's in Rome by the Colosseum that's, that was built to Roma and Venus that Hadrian wow. had. And like a lot of people don't even know what that temple is. They just look at the Colosseum, but it's pretty well preserved. So this was, this was his attempt, uh, but in so doing, he actually helped to preserve the memory of those locations and he he didn't destroy the first century remains really he just they built right on top of them wow so so what you're saying that god used hadrian to preserve these ancient christian holy sites by using pagan temples to cover them seems like it he he marked <laughs> That's pretty awesome. he marked the places and you know nobody bulldozed them so to speak so when Constantine sent his mother and his architect to the Holy Land to mark some of these locations and build churches to commemorate and preserve them, the Roman temples were there and they just disassembled those and found what was underneath and then built a church. Wow, that is amazing. God, it's always interesting to me uh, looking back through history and uh, even in, in your first book about the the things you talk about about the Exodus and how God uses non-believers to preserve what He's done historically. Uh, it's it's just a fast. It's it's a it's an education in the providence and the sovereignty of God, and how all things are moving towards His desired ends. It's really a it's really a cool encouragement to me as I've been studying archaeology. This is awesome. Yeah, absolutely agree. We we look at so many of our sources archaeologically, and you know primarily they are non biblical, non Christian, non Jewish sources, right? whether we're looking at Old Testament or New Testament, it's usually from cultures, worldviews, nations that are apart from who God is working with or through. And they're the ones that, that are giving us this extra historical and archaeological information in so many cases. That is so cool. It's just neat to see God working in that way. Well, let's talk a little bit about more, uh, a little more about that exact thing uh, surrounding the the life and the work of Jesus. What ancient inscriptions and texts do we have outside of the New Testament, outside of the Christian, you know, uh, Bible that talk about who Jesus was? What 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 do we find when we dig into that? So I kind of divided those up into two categories. Uh, one is the ancient manuscripts or the ancient uh, documents, if you will, writings of historians and, and philosophers of the first and second century. So we have several of those. I mean, in the back of the book, I put a compilation together of you know, these 11 quotes. And so you can see various people and their perspectives on Jesus, whether it's uh, Celsus, who is a 
going on a diatribe about Christianity, but he's talking about the birth of Jesus and visiting Egypt and doing miracles and proclaiming himself God and so forth. Um, or, you know, there's there's one, the one of the main Christian sources outside of the New Testament is Justin Martyr, who writes this letter to the emperor, and he tells him to appeal to his Roman sources, and they'll see what happens. So we've we've got many of those from the first and second century in these manuscripts, right? But we don't actually have like the first century document that Josephus wrote or anything like that. However, we then have some inscriptions that are referring to Jesus that come from the first century or uh, just after. So one really interesting piece of artwork plus an inscription is called the Alexamenos Graffito. And this was discovered in Rome, actually, on the Palatine Hill on the wall of a building. And it is the earliest depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus that's ever been found. It dates approximately from about 100 AD to 200 AD. And it shows Jesus on the cross, but they've given him a donkey head, right? This is graffiti that has been done by Roman polytheists who are mocking Jesus and Christianity. And then next to the crucified Jesus, they have this Christian guy whose name was Alexamenos because they wrote it down there. And they say Alexamenos worships his God. So they knew who Jesus was. They knew about the crucifixion. They knew that Christians existed and worshiped Jesus as God. But to them, that it's all ridiculous. It's like Paul wrote to the Corinthians that the crucifixion to the Hellenistic mindset was just foolishness mm-hmm. because they can't conceive of how, how in the world could a deity get the death penalty and suffer this horrible death that was reserved for non-citizen criminals. So that just didn't make sense to them. But it's, it's really powerful attestation of knowledge of Jesus and Christianity, you know, around 100 AD or so, even in Rome. Yeah. But then we've, we've even got earlier stuff now, too. So, you know, that one, that one's been around for a bit longer. But uh, the next oldest one, I would say, it would be the James Ossuary, which was really controversial for quite a while. I mean, I suppose it still is in some circles, but it was involved in that antiquities trial that went on for a decade but as a result of that, so many experts looked at it and scrutinized it, different types of experts, too, from various fields. And at the end of the day, the case had no proof that it was a forgery and that these items were actually returned to the owner. And many scholars became convinced that it was a legitimate artifact with this Aramaic inscription that says, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus from Jerusalem in the first century, you know, prior to 70, which we look in Josephus and we find out that James, the brother of Jesus, which Josephus calls him that, he knows the association, was martyred in 62 AD. He was he was thrown off the Temple Mount by the priests and then stoned. Uh, so he was important because he was a leader in the Jerusalem church, but also people knew that he was the half-brother of Jesus. Well, and just for our audience, so an, an ossuary box is a, is a bone box that there was a Jewish tradition about. They would let a body decay for like a year, and then they'd collect their body, their their bones, uh, and put them into an ossuary and kind of put them away with the rest of their family, right? And on that bone box, that ossuary box, 
there's an inscription with Jesus' name on it, affiliating him with Joseph and James. Well, what? let me ask you a question about this, because um, the names Joseph and James today are kind of common names. And so how do we know that this isn't referring to some other Jesus who has a, a dad named Joseph and a brother named James? Right. And those were really common names at that time, too. But that specific relationship of names makes it a lot more of a narrow case. In fact, uh, a statistical study was done looking at the population of Jerusalem, looking at the popularity of those names and then those names relationships. And it came to the conclusion that in first century Jerusalem, there would have been less than two people who fit that specific name relationship. Whoa. Okay. So that's, yeah, that's very narrow. So that, man, that's, that's fascinating, right? Yeah. So that, that gives us some statistical probability or possibilities, right? That it could be, it's a fairly low percentage. Uh, And who, who else though would it be? That's the question we have to ask. We know about James, the brother of Jesus again, because Josephus even talks about him like that. It's not just the New Testament that says that, but the way that the inscription is phrased is also really important. Now, of all the ossuary inscriptions that have been discovered, only one other one mentions the the name of the brother. So that's that's really a big deal. That's very important. It tells us that this brother was someone who people would recognize, who was important, who was famous. Uh, the, the other ossuary that does that, it doesn't include the father too. So the normal protocol was the father or sometimes the place of origin or the profession. So the James ossuary here is it's going and it's adding an extra step to help identify who this person is. And that really suggests to me that it is naming Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ here on this Ossuary. I mean, it fits everything so well. It's just the statistical likelihood is really high. Yeah, and who would this other Jesus be that it's referring to, right? We've never heard of him, and it would have to be someone prominent from the time, but there's only one that we know from the time. Yeah, exactly. And and people recognize that right away. So why did this thing get controversial as far as was it a forgery or not? Um, because of the, the possible significance of it. Well, they were looking at it, you know, geologists looked at it. They said, okay, this is the right kind of stone for first century Jerusalem and, and it's been in a tomb. And then they looked at the inscription and they said, all right, well, the first part, it's got this patina in it. So this ancient residue. So yeah, we'll, we'll say that that part of the inscription is actually ancient, but we think he, they forged the brother of Jesus part. But then they found the patina, the ancient residue in in Jesus, the name of Jesus also. And so now, you know, the evidence shows that the whole inscription was made in the first century prior to this thing being put in the tomb. So you, you really can't get around that anymore. And, and this is why a lot of scholars and other people have come to the conclusion that this is a legit artifact. And because of that, it really looks like it is an inscription mentioning Jesus from the first century. Man, that is, that's amazing, right? And and you you can see, I, I know in your first book, you have pictures of this ossuary, right? It's, it's documented. You can go look at the inscription on this bone box today um, and, and see for yourself. If you just Google search the James ossuary, right, it should come up. Right, right. 
Man, yeah. I would encourage you out there, if, if you haven't seen it, go look at this. It is a fascinating piece of archaeology that corroborates, I mean, so much of what Scripture says, right? Joseph, Jesus, James, right time period. In the time period that James died prior to 70 AD, all of these things line up with what uh, what we know happened in, in the past. That is just, man, that's awesome. So are there any other inscriptions that, that we look to that, that uh, talk about and refer to Jesus? Yeah, there's one, one more very recent one. And this was an inscription on a cup that was found in the ancient harbor of Alexandria recently. And on it, it says something like, uh, to Christ the magician. So it's a, it's a dedicatory hmm. inscription. And why would they phrase it like that? So this is in Egypt. Egypt was all about magic at that period in history. And so they had heard of Jesus and miracles that he's performing. And so they're thinking of him as this amazing magician. And we, we can look at later uh, Egyptian sources from, say, one or 200 years after that, like the magical papyri. And they talk about one of the ways that you go about casting out demons, they say, is you invoke Jesus, God of the Hebrews. So oh. they, they knew about that, too. It's like the sons of Sceva in the mm -hmm. book of Acts. You know, they had heard about this is what some apostles and Christians did. So that must be the formula you use. So they, are, they know what, what happened with Jesus. They know about some of the things in his life and what people have been saying. But they are projecting their worldview of magic onto this. And so they think that by doing this dedication to Christ the magician or using this cup with a magical incantation, that they can somehow harness his power and, and use that. But they're showing that they know who Jesus Christ is. Uh, it's about 50 AD that this cup comes from. 50 and, AD? Yeah, some, you know, Whoa. second half of the first century, very early. And so they know about him and they know about some talk of the miracles. And again, this is another really important inscription, I think, in just establishing some of the historical archaeological record for Jesus. Yeah. And, and I mean, just even showing like his fame is 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 growing quickly, right? 50 AD. I mean, so we're talking, you know, 15 to 20 years after his death. And in Alexandria, Egypt, they already realized he was some type of miracle worker. And they're trying to invoke his spells to do their own magic. That is, man, that is fascinating. So we have inscriptions etched in cups and etched on walls in Rome and etched in ossuary boxes. But in addition to that, like you said earlier, we have the historical records of Christians like Justin Martyr, but also non-Christians like Josephus. Uh, talking about Jesus and referring to him, which corroborates it doesn't uh, it doesn't contradict what Scripture says. It goes right along with it. So there's good evidence that he was actually a historical person. Right, right. And actually, with the material from outside of the Bible, we could reconstruct the major components of the life of Jesus from the the birth and the claim of the virgin birth and his father being a carpenter and them going to Egypt and him performing miracles and him claiming he was God and that he had disciples, he was a teacher, he performed miracles, uh, he was on trial before Pontius Pilate and was crucified and died, and then people reported that he rose three days later, and they continued to worship him. So all of that stuff comes from material outside of Christian sources and outside of the New Testament from the first and second century. So there's a whole ton of material out there that demonstrates the historical person of Jesus. 
Man, that is amazing. I mean, that is, that's truly amazing. Well, hey, let's talk a little bit about um, the trial of Jesus and evidence surrounding that. Uh, he, he went on, uh, went before a bunch of different people on trial uh, the night uh, before his murder and then, then the morning of. Tell us a little bit about uh, the evidence for, for these people and, and what we know went on in Jerusalem at the time. So the trial of Jesus, even though this is a really short period of time, uh, it's one of the best attested archaeologically parts of the New Testament. We have these characters that are mentioned. We have these locations that are mentioned. And then we've got events and historical cultural context. So think about Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, the high priest. And, and then we've got Pontius Pilate. We've got Herod Antipas. We have Jesus himself. Uh, we could throw in some side characters in there like Simon of Cyrene and Peter. And then we've got locations like the house of the high priest, the meeting hall, of the Sanhedrin, the Roman praetorium in Jerusalem. And we can, we can look archaeologically at, at all of these things. All of them are attested. I mean, for Annas and, and not just, uh, archaeological material, but we've got, People like Josephus and Philo of Alexandria who, who mentioned these guys too. But, you know, Annas, um, besides being talked about in Josephus, his tomb has been discovered outside of the ancient walls of Jerusalem. Wow. Caiaphas, we have his ossuary with his name inscribed on it. <laughs> and then another one of his granddaughter that tells us that he's from the, the priestly line of Maaziah from Beit Imri. And then, and that was uh, that was the, if I'm remembering right, that's the priest. That's one of the priests that um, David elected. Is that is that correct? Or it goes way back to it goes Chronicles. way back yeah. to the Levites, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's that that line is mentioned in Chronicles. So, yeah, see, he was actually a legit priest, unlike the earlier ones in the Hasmonean period. But um, or allegedly, you know, maybe maybe they weren't from that family, but he just said it. But they claim to be. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so we've got, you know, all sorts of things for Pilate. Besides historical records, we've got the very famous Pilate inscription from Caesarea. We've got the ring with Pilate's name on it that was, I should say, cleaned. It wasn't discovered that recently, but nobody knew about it from Herodium. Uh, and, and then, of course, coins that he issued during his time as prefect. And then we've got Herod Antipas, who that's just a real short part of the trial, but he's in there. So, you know, we've got all his coins with his name and title on it. We've got cities that he built as well as palaces. I mean, there's no, no question at all about who he is. Uh, and then, you know, Jesus himself, which we just talked about some of that material. Simon of Cyrene, there's an ossuary. It seems to be of his son that, oh. that mentions him son of Simon and, and that he's, uh, from Cyrene. So Alexander, yeah, his, his son. And then Peter doesn't, doesn't, uh, just off the top of my head, doesn't, doesn't Paul mention Alexander and Rufus in Romans? He does. And they, that might be them. that might be a corroborate. Yeah, sure. It might, it might not, yeah. Be, but yeah, we're not sure. You know, Paul, Paul mentions a lot of people. Luke obviously mentions a lot of people too. And sometimes these inscriptions pop up where, huh, that's interesting. Same, same people, same place, same time. I wonder yeah. if, you know, 
But if there aren't additional identifiers, then we can't. I was thinking too of in, in Mark when when he talks about Simon of Cyrene, he has that uh, that parenthetical where he says, "You know, the father of Alexander yes. and Rufus." So it it could be right, but it, uh, the 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 that Alexander being mentioned, but it may not be. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, sorry to interrupt. I just yeah. Thank yeah, you. no, that's that's great. I mean, there's often little clues like that all over the place. So, and then we've got Peter, right? So. Uh, besides some second century inscriptions in his house that that mention his name, uh, there's at the Vatican they excavated that tomb, which some think is the tomb of Peter, with the bones of this sixty-something-year-old man there, where they've got all the components of the skeleton except for the feet, like he was crucified upside down, and they cut him off the cross there, oh. and it's there's a little inscription peter right so it seems like it it was at least a very early christian monument to him even if it wasn't his actual burial but you know we don't really have reason to think it wasn't necessarily so all sorts of people you know the places um we've got three candidates i would say for the house of the high priest but my favorite one at least to show people is the burnt house or the kathros house which was a high priestly family later in the first century. So maybe it was like the high priestly mansion that just whenever you were serving that role, that's where you lived. We, we don't know for sure, but it's a good possibility. But we know where the Sanhedrin met in 33 AD. Okay, top uh, the Temple Mount on the south side, the Hall of Hewn Stone. You can go there. You can see some column capitals that have, that were broken from the period. And then the Praetorium, you can visit some specific spots of that because, you know, not the whole thing has been excavated. But I think we can look at the, the stone pavement where Jesus and Pilate were standing. We can wow. point out Gab- the Gabbatha and the Bema. So there's a really incredible amount of archaeological material that connects to this trial of Jesus narrative. That is fascinating. You can go and see where Jesus stood on trial with Pilate. It's still the the the, the road the the stones are still there. Yeah, some of, some of them are still there. Yeah, man, that is just it's mind blowing, right? Like these are things you think, wow. I mean, again, I believe that Scripture is true, but when I hear this type of evidence, it gives me more confidence in my faith to go, yeah, this stuff actually happened, right? I believed it, but. It grows your faith to see, no, this is real world material. It's not a Star Wars faith, right? It's not a galaxy far, far away type of thing. Jesus came and, uh, and inhabited this earth, and there's evidence to back it up. Well, hey, one thing I really uh, would like you to, to comment on is the tomb of Jesus. Because um, in the last couple of years, this has just fascinated me. And so I've done some, some deep dive study on this. Let's talk about the tomb of Jesus. Do we know where it is? And, and how c- could we know where his tomb was? Okay, so let's start with the event in 33 AD. Jesus is buried there. And then the disciples, the women and the disciples show up. And the tomb is open and it's empty. And then they go and see the resurrected Jesus. So this is an incredibly important location, not just in the history of Christianity, but theologically too, Mm -hmm. because it's, it's something that represents the resurrection. The empty tomb 
is, is a representation of that. The body's not in there. The tomb is there. There's nobody in there. So this is not something that the Christians would just forget. Where did this happen? A lot of them went there to look for themselves, right? This is not, sure. this is not just like, Oh, that's the apartment that Peter stayed in for a year <laughs> yeah. when he was in Jerusalem or, or this is like where, uh, Jesus scrawled something in the dirt. I think maybe, maybe it was over there. This is, this is like the most important thing. Yep. And, and it's marked by something that was carved out of stone. So it's not going to easily go away. It's not like a, a wooden cross or something that gets reused or that there's lots of them in the same area. So this is not something they're likely to forget. And we've got to recall that Jerusalem during that time period was still a pretty small city and people did not move around the same way that they do today. So generations upon generations of Christians are living there. And there was a continuous Christian presence there, except for the period of the first revolt when a lot of the Christians left the city. But then they came back. So they're not, they're not forgetting where anything is. And then Hadrian comes and he knows where this, this happened. I'm sure he asked people. He probably didn't just envision it, but yeah, he investigated he, it some. Yeah. He, he builds it. He builds the temple right on top of there on purpose. I mean, it's Jupiter and Venus. So main, main God of, the Romans and then the goddess that he associates himself and his family with. Mm. So he's, he's doing this on purpose. And then, then what happens? Constantine, well, his mother particularly and his architect go there and they, they ask the Bishop of Jerusalem, the leader of the Jerusalem church at the time, where was the tomb of Jesus? And he tells them, so they disassemble this temple and then they see this rock cut tomb under there so then they cut away some of the, the rock from the cliff face. They didn't mess the tomb up itself, but around it so that they could build this protective structure around it called the eticule. So the story, the story fits really well, the memory of it and everything. But we can actually analyze a lot of this archaeologically and see if it actually fits. So the first thing is, was the tomb of Jesus in the Holy Sepulcher was that outside of the walls of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus's crucifixion? And, and yes, we know it was. I mean, that's, that was a problem for, uh, some scholars, pseudo scholars in the 19th century who misunderstood that the old city walls, as we call them today, were not the Roman walls. Those are Ottoman period, 16th century. Some of them follow the same line, but others don't. So it was outside of the, the walls of the city, like it was supposed to be. Okay, like scripture says, okay. Right, and that was the normal process too. You didn't have tombs inside the walls of the city. Okay. So then then we look at things like, well, the gospels tell us that it was a garden that was a burial ground too. Well, archaeological investigations that have been done there found that it was a quarry until the, about the first century BC when it was turned into a garden. And then, and it was used as a, as a place for tombs. There are other first century tombs in the area, actually in the church itself. There's one really close to the tomb of Jesus. You can go see it and crawl in it today. Wow. So they, it was being used to bury people in these rock cut tombs. 
And they're, you know, they're not Roman tombs, they're tombs for Jews. That's a different kind of tomb. So, so there's that stuff that fits, right? But then, then we look at the tomb of Jesus specifically, because it has some particular attributes about it that are different and helpful. We read in the Gospels the structure of it. So it's, it's stone carved, rock cut tomb. It is a single chamber. There's a burial bench for the body and it is sealed with this big stone. All right. So a lot of times these are called arcosolium tombs. And we look at the, the remnants of the tomb of Jesus and we see it's a single chamber tomb. It was one of the sepulcher sealing rolling stone sealed tombs. And there's a rock cut burial bench in there too. Wow. And, you know, the most, really the most important component of all this is the single chamber tomb thing. There are no other Roman period single chamber tombs of this type in the Jerusalem area because that's not how they made them. They were always turned into family tombs. So they would have a, a central chamber and then off of that, they would have these separate areas. And so you'd, you'd bury a whole family or generations in one of these tombs. And that was normally what you would do. But with the tomb of Jesus, it was different because it was brand new. So they hadn't added all those areas. And then no one reused it afterwards because they held it in such uh, high regard okay. as an important historical location. And so it's it's unique in that. And I think... All of that together really demonstrates that it, it is the tomb of Jesus. So, so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that the tomb in that church, that is, you would say, that's the tomb of Christ. That's the tomb of Jesus. It's got a lot of stuff dressed up around it, but you can even tell when you go there. You can you can see the the structure of the tomb, the single chamber the entryway, the burial bench, all that kind of stuff. So, And then, of course, look at some of the other tombs nearby. You understand wow. you were in a graveyard. So if anybody wants to go, I mean, you can you can go in the tomb still, right? They still allow you mm-hmm. to visit and actually go into the, the limestone cave. And, and there's, there's the slab, there's the, the, the shelf. It's right, right there. You can go see where Christ rose from the dead. Yeah. And now there's a marble piece that covers the burial bench. Actually, that was put there when the Constantinian church was built. But when mm-hmm. National Geo was doing some preservation and restoration on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Tomb of Jesus structures, uh, they removed that. And then for the first time since I don't know how long, probably since the Crusader era at least, maybe even longer, they we could see the limestone burial bench exposed on which the body would have laid. So wow. when all that stuff is, all the coverings are taken off, I think it would be a lot more obvious to people. So you just got to have a little bit of imagination. That makes sense. Yeah. And I actually saw there's a documentary on Disney plus the, the, the national geo uh, documentary on the tomb of Christ and, and they conclude, yeah, this is, this is definitely the place where Jesus of Nazareth was buried. Now I don't think that they agree that he rose from the dead, but they say all evidence points to this is the authentic tomb of Christ. Right, right. <laughs> that is that's basically so cool. every archaeologist agrees with that. So wow. it's not like something that's disputed in, in the <laughs> scholarly community. 
That is amazing, man. That it's just it's it's encouraging. It's encouraging. Hey, we've got about we've got about nine minutes left, but real quick before we go, can you tell us a little bit about the Nazareth inscription? So the Nazareth inscription is, I would say, as far as archaeology goes, it's the closest thing we've got to archaeological evidence about the resurrection. I mean, we looked at the empty tomb, of course. But this is this is an inscription. It's an official Roman inscription, actually, that seems to be giving us the Roman perspective on the resurrection reports. If you recall, in Matthew 28, the soldiers go back after Jesus is gone, and they they tell they tell them what happened. The body's gone, and the priests say, "Here's some money." Go and spread the story that the disciples of Jesus stole the body, and uh, while you were asleep, and you know, and and we'll make sure then that nothing bad happens to you, that the mm-hmm. governor doesn't get you in trouble or anything. And then it says that's you know the story that is spread among the Romans to this day. So, so that is what got out at least on the Roman side. Now this inscription is we call it, it's an edict of Caesar, it calls itself, but uh, sometimes it's called a rescript. So essentially the the emperor would write a letter to an official in a province, and then they would take that letter and they would inscribe it on stone so that everybody could see it. So this might've been set up in a town square. It's called the Nazareth inscription because it popped up in Nazareth. We don't know if that's where it was originally placed or if it just got taken there. Although in, in my mind, I think it's unlikely that it got moved to Nazareth in later times. It's just Nazareth was a insignificant little nowhere village. It it doesn't make a lot of sense. So probably it was there originally, but it definitely would have been in the region of Judea, Galilee. And it, it doesn't name the emperor, but the context of it and the language, it's most likely Claudius, Emperor Claudius. In fact, I would narrow it down even more to this, the first few years of his rule, 41 to 44, when Herod Agrippa I was the king of the region, and he was very opposed to Christians and Christianity. And so I think that he probably pushed Claudius uh, to to enact some more policies against Christians. Hmm. So the content, though, is what's really interesting here. It is it's a new penalty. It's the death penalty for anybody that goes to a specific type of tomb. So one of these rock cut tombs that's sealed with a big stone. And it says, and takes the body or steals the body with wicked intent. That's that's the content of it. It is not if you steal valuable items that the person was buried with. It's not if you if you desecrate the tomb in some way. It's all about getting into this specific type of tomb, which, by the way, was not the type of tomb that Romans used. It's the type of tomb that Jesus was buried in, though. And getting the body, the corpse, and taking that with some wicked intent, you know, some ulterior motive. Hmm. And if we apply that to what is mentioned at the end of Matthew, it makes sense. The Romans thought the disciples stole the body of Jesus, and then they said he resurrected. 
and it, and it's spreading all over the place all over the roman empire and so they want to put a stop to this and make sure nothing else like this happens again so they go to the extreme it's the death penalty if you do this or or maybe they're even saying like there's basically a mark on the head of the apostles or the disciples who did this oh okay the death penalty will be retroactively imposed on them wow they want to they want to squash this rumor uh which tacitus kind of talks about he calls it the the pernicious superstition that broke out in Judea about the resurrection. So that, that at least tells us the Romans were aware, I think of the resurrection and the ramifications of it throughout the empire. And they were trying to do something to stop it. Of course, like we said at the beginning, archeology span cannot prove that the resurrection happened. We can show some historical evidence about knowledge of this and about the situation, and it, and it helps to give us context and even suggest this story could be plausible, but we can't prove that with archaeology, just like we can't prove it really with history. It's, it's a miraculous. It's a supernatural event. We can't do it scientifically. We can't reproduce that kind of thing. So we have limitations, like we talked about earlier, uh, in, in apologetics, in fields of inquiry, history, science, archaeology, etc. Yeah, but even with the Nazareth inscription, like if it isn't, if it isn't a direct affront to the resurrection rumor, then you'd have to ask, well, then what is it? And why aren't these all over Israel? Why haven't we found this edict sent other places? But also, uh, didn't Jews kind of have some strict ceremonial laws about touching dead bodies? I mean, was it a common practice for Jews just to break into graves and touch dead bodies? I don't, I don't see where this type of an edict from Claudius would, would arise unless it was a direct rebuttal of the resurrection. Right. It's very odd. Yes, there definitely are within the Mosaic law prohibitions uh, against touching dead bodies or that you become ritually unclean. And, and no, people weren't breaking into tombs and stealing bodies, right? That, that was not a thing. People did break into tombs to steal grave goods that were in mm-hmm. there sometimes. You know, we see that happen still today. But not not the bodies, you know. It's not like they had a bunch of mad scientists going around trying to reanimate like Frankenstein or something. So it's yeah, it's very weird. It's very very interesting coincidence that it turns up in Nazareth because what were the early Christians called? Nazarenes, right? Yeah. So yeah. they're they're associated with Jesus of Nazareth. You you go to the source to you know cut the roots off of of the problem. Man, that is so. <laughs> that is fascinating. Yeah, and and people again could could do a search and they can find pictures of this uh, Nazareth inscription. It's a it's a marble tablet, right, etched out, and uh, and you can go and you can look at this possible direct response to the the resurrection claim. Yeah, and and they might come across this article that was written about three years ago. Now that they did a study on the the actual marble itself. And they tried to source where it came from as far as what quarry it did. And it, it had a really close match for a quarry on the island of Kos, which is just off the, the western coast of Turkey. And so then they were saying, oh, you know, like this has nothing to do with Jesus. It, it was from this island. The inscription must be about this ruler, Nikias of Kos, whose tomb got destroyed 
and who like the people hated him and they like dragged his body right out in front of the tomb and like desecrated it and made a whole production about it. But uh, because the, the piece of marble is from that island doesn't mean that it, that the inscription is talking about that. Right. I mean, it's weird that it would have made it from coast. It's a tiny little nowhere Island to Nazareth, but yeah. you, you go to coast and you look at the inscriptions there. And what you find out is that, the Herods actually sourced their marble from there. And there's a, there's inscriptions oh. mentioning them on that island and lots of the marble, in fact, that they used in <laughs> Israel came from there because there isn't a local marble source. So they wow. had to export or to import it. That's so, fascinating. Yeah. It's I had never a lot of people that. got confused with that article out and, you know, thought that, oh, let's just throw out the Nazareth inscription. But if you look into some of the details, really what it tells us is, oh, yeah, like we could see already, the Herods used that place to source marble, you know, and yeah. then they made inscriptions out of it. And Herod Agrippa was in power then. So. That is amazing, Titus. The book, once again, is Excavating the Evidence for Jesus by Dr. Titus Kennedy. I would highly encourage you to go out and check it out. Uh, if you want to follow him on Instagram, it's at Biblical Archaeology. Uh, he posts a lot of great stuff there on these types of things, along with pictures of artifacts. Titus, thanks so much for being with us today on Stand to Reason. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Me. Yep. And thank you, listeners. We will be back with another hour, and uh, Greg will be back on the broadcast next week. Thanks for being here.